This is Ramdas here and now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. This talk from Ramdas harks all the way back to July 18th, to be exact, 1976, when he did the last darshan. Sounds like a movie at his dad's farm in Franklin, Franklin, New Hampshire. And uh, many of you know that people used to gather there over the years. Starting when he came back from India in 1968. And it's a a place that's actually documented. You can go up on the site and you can see all the Sufi dancing and Ramdas giving uh, talks and chanting and yoga. I mean, it was just a... It was a a spiritual Disneyland over there, I should say. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have met him before he went back to India the second time and spent some time there. And uh, it was a very profound experience. And my first experience of satsang, which is right at the top of this talk, he talks about how everybody... Uh, would get together there, and he would think to himself, well, I wonder, I don't really have a message. And really what the message is, is uh, what's in common to everyone gathered together is the message. And that satsang is is the way that we have to touch that space. And then he goes on to talk about something that's very, very um, special for me, the term spark. I really love that term. And it was just, uh, I think, the other day on a podcast on Mind Rolling that uh, we were talking, David and I, with with somebody, uh, and they were talking about that one ineffable moment where they got out of their senses and really felt an ignition, a spark uh, that uh, really uh, informed the rest of their life. And I truly remember that moment myself. And you can have more, and it's more than one moment. It can be a number of moments. It can be moments that happen throughout your life. But that very special moment is the first time that you actually exp- experience that deep, deep clarity that there is a way, there is a path, there is something beyond senses. And so satsang is an incubator for that place. And um, he talks here. So if you've touched the spark in yourself, everything I am saying to you makes sense. And none of it is any big deal. It doesn't make any big difference because you are there and it's just yes. But if you haven't touched the spark in yourself... Nothing I could say would ever do it for you, would ever make sense. And how many situations have we all been in where that is such an issue where you come across people you love and, but they can't really hear you. And then you can do stupid things like I've done, which is come back from India and uh, the big proselytizer and telling everybody, you've got to listen. This is real you can be happy and I'm going to help you do that. And I even did it to my mother, much to my chagrin now, my poor mom. Um, although she was a Marxist and, you know, she was proselytizing me back. 
so um, there, the, the way in which these two, uh, where, where's the interface? And, and he talks about it. Where's the interface where um, people who have not had that spark where is the way that we have common ground? And um, and this is going to, of course, the nth degree here, where he talks about that partic- that interface between these groups um, is death. Now, not necessarily you, you, that person facing death, but certainly acknowledging it by virtue of the fact that uh, acknowledging suffering. So people who would have nothing to do with the place in themselves where the spark exists in their daily life, but in the presence of death, somehow they're faced with such an overwhelming breakdown of their system, and I would say beyond death, just intense suffering, that they are open to hear. And um, further to that, It's like, how far do you have to stick in the knife to get through the layers of psychology, of defenses, of personality, before you get to the root of a being, where behind that veil is where the spark lives? So I love this term, spark, and uh, it... uh, and, and, it, and when I said before that satsang or sangha or community of people with a single purpose to know themselves better, that is an incubator, incubator for uh, allowing the spark to get created. I mean, it's been uh, decades of, uh, in, in my own case, I have spent a lot of time uh, in satsang with groups, that original group uh, at Ramdas, for instance, that was my first uh, satsang at uh, in, in at his father's place in uh, New Hampshire. And since then, have many have had many 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 opportunities. Uh, it it has become a staple in my life, still is today, um, and uh, it really I can't tell you how many people have come and joined in these kinds of gatherings and that spark has ignited in them. Um, and not as a result to because they're interested in what we are interested in because they, we, you know, we care whether or not they should be interested in Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba or any other entity that we... Um, we have felt close to teachings that we have gotten, not just uh, individuals, but only because uh, of one thing. And, and this uh, harks to something he says, uh, Ram Das also talks about here, which is where Maharaji told us to feed everybody. And ultimately, Ram Das thought, well, feed everybody uh, is not necessarily food. It's feeding them me and whatever that the most edible part of me he says which is true and it's that feeding that we can all do once we have acknowledged that spark in us and uh again that that reverberates back to satsang and uh being able to share and that's the feeding um so love this this talk around uh, 
that, you know, if we could just ignite ourselves and everyone else around us, uh, we would be in a much more happy place, wouldn't we? Um, a little announcement here or something we should talk about. Did you see the Blessing of Mortality workshop? Okay, it was uh, in the last couple of weeks, and uh, we're in mid-March right now. Uh, that was just so great. And if you haven't seen it, go to ramdas.org, and you'll find it. You'll be able to navigate to it. And there also is included a wonderful uh, webcast that Ramdas did with his uh, co-writer Rameshwar Das, answering questions uh, around the content in the Blessing of Mortality workshop, which was with, with Roshi Joan Halifax and Frank Ossoseski, uh, who are uh, both uh, done tremendous amount of work over a long period of time around death and dying. So uh, I urge you, if you've missed this, don't miss it, because it's got, uh, uh, it's got a moment in there, never mind all the words, where Ramdas just goes deep into this place of unconditional love and shares it in that moment and just became a just profound moment. And that's in part two. So that's something uh, I would highly encourage everybody to check out, as well as coming up, Roshi, Joan Halifax, who I love, who is just one of the great teachers in this country, is going to be with Ramdas and Krishna Das for the first time at the uh, retreat in Maui, also for the first time being held at this beautiful resort, the Napili Resort, um, on April 29th. It starts uh, for five days. So if you're interested, although I don't know that there's a lot of room left at the inn, so to speak, right at the facility, but right next door, there's a num- next door to the facility is, a, is several like three, four, five other uh, smaller hotels which are affordable and you can just stay in them and just just walk down the beach in your bare feet. It's like, you know, at the most one to ten minutes all the way down. It's just one after that. So that's just a way for you to consider joining us there. It's a beautiful event and... uh, we have a, a wonderful guest uh, teacher coming, uh, Mirabai Starr, those of you who know her, and of course my uh, soul, sister, wife, wonderful Saraswati Marcus will be there along with Kate Rabinovich, who's also going to be teaching yoga. So there you go. Uh, and uh, we shall uh, see you next time on, and here is Ramdas, here and now. If I had a message, this would all be much easier. But we are the message. And whatever it is that brings us together, what is common to everyone gathered here, that is the message. And satsang or sangha or the gathering is our our way of touching that space.
the beauty and immediacy of nature. The beauty and immediacy of the human heart. The sentimentality connected with the fact that this is the last gathering here in Franklin. And actually in the United States for maybe a year. The increasing lightness with which we meet each time. A few years ago when these gatherings were held, there was much more heaviness, cynicism, fear of losing it. Now we're all kind of rolling along. And yet who we are and what brings us here <clears throat> is such a tiny spark in such a tiny number of beings, proportional to the number of beings, four billion beings in the world. In fact, this gathering itself exists in part because of this bizarre circumstance that reflects how tiny this spark is. This gathering was originally scheduled because ABC television was doing a documentary on new religions. And we were it. And they were, they did Philadelphia, and they were coming up here to uh, have an outdoor scene for a September airing. And then a few days ago, the producer called me and he said, <clears throat> something's come up. <coughs> he said, in, in our research of new religions, we uh, were exploring, besides you, uh, Reverend Moon. <clears throat> and it turned out that Reverend Moon was a hotbed of political intrigue that involved the CIA and other such organizations, and ABC couldn't resist. And so they changed the show from New Religions to an expose of Reverend Moon. And we didn't even get to the cutting room floor. <laughs> because we don't sell Salmonex, <laughs> or Nightall, or Chevrolets, or anything, because we don't buy them. <laughs> hmm. So that who we are is just not very interesting.
We are a small outlandish cult. <laughs> and yet what it is that draws us here is in every single being of the four billion beings in the world. But when you look at your own past and even your own present and watch that spark, that little bit of light, like a sailboat in the distance on an ocean, go under and come back up and get lost again and again into stuff, stuff, into our melodrama, into our minds, our thought forms. How subtle this tiny light is until like a Ramakrishna or a Christ or a Buddha or whoever it becomes like a brilliant star, like a sun, like a million suns. But you can understand how so many beings never can contact that spark enough in themselves. To lighten their way by it, to warm them or enlighten them. And our compassion now, directed not only at all people, but even towards ourselves, allows us to acknowledge what is. But what is in us has a yearning to it. not just because of the ecstasy of the experiences connected with the light and the yearning doesn't even seem to be our personal yearning mm. 
Sometimes I look at us and we're like salmon swimming upstream to spawn. It's like some huge instinct that's unfolding in all of us. And some of us are going, we seem to be walking in the other direction, but the force of it is pushing us backwards. We're going towards the world as hard as we can, and the harder we go, the more we're going towards God. In spite of ourselves, most of us seem almost intentionally to try to snuff out the spark, all the time protesting that we would nurture the spark. For it seems that most of us have a kind of a, a superficial, philosophical overview of what's happening to us. We have enough to be glib, to con ourselves a little bit, that we sort of know what's happening to us. But for the most part, what's happening is so much more profound, it's as profound as the concept of God. And every time we've attempted to conceive of what we are about, our concepts keep getting in the way. We keep outgrowing them. Who are we? What are we doing? Why are we here? things I've ever said about why, don't touch why. And I say it good. <laughs> and the phrase, it is unspeakable, takes on a gut meaning. It's unspeakable. Many of us have identified our paths with what it's about. Our guru or our teacher, or our devotion, or our meditation, or our kriyas, or our studies,
And as we get into more and more delicious and exquisite and subtle methods and postures, somebody comes along and says, you know, the essence of this trip is that it's nothing special. And we get an uneasy feeling. Because we have been so busy making it very, very special. Because we needed to think we were special. I just, for one, just personally, have been through so many spiritual trips now that I'm exhausted to just think about them, <laughs> let alone to relate them. And each one, when I was in the middle of it, was undoubtedly the one. But the term trip means that it's finite. It has a beginning, an end, and a goal. But if it's nothing special, is it really nothing special? Somebody that's new to this gathering must think we're all insane. <laughs> we are, so it's okay. You were right. <laughs> I take a line like, is nothing special? I mean, I wouldn't stay. <laughs> you can walk out in the fields. The uh, Porta John is right there. There's water right next to it. There's a lake there. If you have a bathing suit, you can swim in it. After a while, we'll have some watermelon over there. Now you can just lie down and go to sleep <laughs> till the sermon is over. <laughs> we can sing a hymn. <laughs> Krishnamurti has written books and books discussing how nothing special it is. <laughs> he says it's so good. <clears throat> Isn't it bizarre that if the spark, if you've touched the spark in yourself, Everything I'm saying makes sense to you, and none of it makes any difference. If you haven't touched the spark in yourself, nothing I could say would do it. And even if you understand it, you don't. I keep looking for the interface between these groups. I keep looking for the interface between people who seem to know 
something that has changed the entire course of their lives and those that don't? And what would be the vehicle for meeting those that don't? <clears throat> the ones that I tuned in on, the one that I have tuned in on is death. That seemed to be the interface where we could meet. And people who would have nothing whatsoever to do with the place in themselves where the spark exists in their daily life, in the presence of death, of their own or others, somehow are faced with such an overwhelming breakdown of their system that they are open to hear. Many of you are already familiar with the description I've given of the visit I had to death row at uh, San Quentin. When these men in solitary confinement were all open and present and right here. And we met in an incredible space. And they felt like old monks in a Tibetan monastery. And yet going on to another cell block where they were not where they were all serving life, the vibration was entirely different. There they were all closed and cynical except for one or two out of maybe 60. But out of the 34 I visited, at least 28 or 29 of them were wide open and ready to hear on death row. It's sort of like the question of how deep you have to stick in the knife or the needle to get through the layers of psychology, of defense, of personality. When do you get to the root of a being behind the veil where the spark is? Probably the most productive times are the natural transitions in people's lives. The first couple of years of life, puberty, menopause, death, turning 40, having your first child, Finishing your education. Running out of welfare. <laughs> Everybody's got their critical moment.
But then maybe that desire to find that um, interface comes out of righteousness, not out of truth. When ABC came along, I didn't trust the whole process. Not because the guy that came up, Tony, wasn't a really nice guy, the producer. Cameraman wasn't a good man. But I just knew that what it was we were about did not seem to be a mass phenomenon. And yet I wasn't going to be the one to blow the whistle. And I just wondered which way it would end up on the cutting room floor. Is bigger better? If there were 10,000 people here today, would it be better? I've thought maybe this year, maybe I was, I lectured to maybe 70,000 people in the course of this year and taught intensively maybe 200. Next year, I don't think I'll lecture to anybody and maybe I won't teach anybody. But Maharaji said to me, feed everybody. But he didn't tell me how. He didn't tell me how. See, and he'd throw apples. See? There. There it is. The whole act. So simple. And when I was first with Maharaji, he kept saying, Ramdas, feed everybody, feed everybody. Just feed everybody. I'd say, Maharaji, how do I awaken my kundalini? He'd look and he'd ponder and he'd say, feed everybody. I'd say, oh, Maharaji, come on, tell me some secrets of yoga. And he'd say, feed everybody. Then I began to realize that what had to be fed to everybody was me. <laughs> that it was, that was what the sacrificial lamb was about. That it was the, you sacrificed yourself into it. You just became the feeding. You be the food. Not just me, everybody. That's what he was saying.
Well, if I am to be the food and I'm to feed everybody, what posture is the most edible? Some ways you can be, they're like Chinese food. They're great tasting, but you're hungry about an hour later. Okay. Some of them are kind of heavy and inedible. Turns out there isn't any way to be. It's nothing special. If you're going to convey nothing special to people, you can't do it specially. You do it in your walk, in your not seeing people as well as you're seeing people. There's no form. And you can see the game that happens when they, you define a form, like in, in Est. So many people become like little Werner Earharts. <laughs> That's not pejorative, it's just a statement of, That beautiful image of the old um, bhikkhu teacher that Jack Cornfield talks about in his book, his new book, um, I think it was in Thailand, when he said to him, I don't know, you tell some people to do one thing and you tell other people to do the opposite thing. What kind of a teacher are you? The old bhikkhu thought about it. He says, well, I'm standing there and they're walking down the road and I see people starting to go off the road to the left and fall into the gutter. And I say, uh-oh, go right. And then a little later, I see somebody going off the road. I say, uh-oh, go left. It's far out to get empty enough to allow yourself to be inconsistent. Because you keep holding on to a model that demands that you, like I walk up to somebody and I see what they really need is to be kissed, to really liberate them. And I just go up and I kiss them. And the next person comes up and they want to be kissed. And the worst thing to do would be to kiss that person. And I don't know any of that. It's just that I know it. And so the next person I don't kiss. But then my mind says to me, why did you kiss the first one and not the second one? You're attracted? What do you want? Something? Okay. One person you say, give up sex. 
Next person, you say, have a ball. Somebody says, Ramdas said, have a ball. He did not. He said, give up sex. Okay. <laughs> That's the blind man and the elephant. Remember that? And all the blind men go to visit an elephant, and they, at lunch they're discussing the elephant, and one touched its tail and said, you know, he's very like a snake. The other touched his side and says, he's a lot like a wall. Somebody touched his leg and said, he's a lot like a tree. And they fought. Do we have the sophistication to be able to understand the way in which rules hamper us and yet to follow rules? Can you impose a discipline on yourself at the same moment knowing that discipline is totally empty? Can you make an effort to go out and serve people and relieve suffering at the same moment that you know that there is nothing whatsoever to do? Can we handle these paradoxes? He does nothing, and nothing is left undone. He goes into the marketplace empty-handed, and everyone receives a gift. The Prince of Love says, I come with a sword. The paradox of free will and determinism. Are we ready to be strong enough to keep our hearts open all the time? Even when it hurts like hell? The balance, the middle way You get too far to one side, you're so busy seeing perfection, seeing the law, seeing the meaning of suffering, seeing the way suffering is grace, 
you lose your humanity. The other night I was at the Mass General visiting a boy with a brain tumor who is on the edge of leaving his body. And I was asked to go out in the waiting room and be with his parents. He was doing fine. And I came out into the waiting room and I was happy. Because I had just been with a being who was ready to go into the light. And his father said to me, if only he could spend a little more time with his daughter. And, I, and the father was crying, and I saw that it was the model in the father's mind that was creating the suffering. And his wife said to me, if he only didn't have to die in this hospital, and the wife's mind was creating the suffering. And the mother said, he's so young, and the mother's mind was creating the suffering. And I saw suffering, and I saw the cause of suffering, and I understood what alleviates suffering, and I understand the Eightfold Path. This is the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. And what I did at that moment was hold both of them, and we all cried together. For that's the humanity of that situation. And then, when we all appreciated the pain of the human predicament, then we shared. And in the sharing, we started to get free of that pain. I learn a great, great deal by working with other human beings suffering. And I hope I bless all of you that you all have that same opportunity. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.